Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Tuesday, January 9th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I am Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. There's a lot of great listing over there, over 60 well-curated podcasts, wide, wide variety of topic areas. All covered from a biblical worldview. My brothers and sisters in Christ over there doing a great job. I would definitely encourage you to go on over there and check it out. Um, I will guarantee you're going to find something to listen to, and you may find more to listen to than you actually have time to listen to it in. All right, and the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is dedicated to prayer, devotion, scripture reading, and Bible study. Um, and currently, we are working through the Gospel of John. All right, so with it being... A Tuesday, we're going to be continuing on with our Bible reading, our regular Bible reading, trying to read through the Bible in a year, and we're reading it in the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible. It is the most recent translation, and from everything I've been able to tell and research and everything else, sorry, moving my mic there for a minute, um, it is the most accurate. Um, so that is why we use it, um, as a number of others do. Um, so we're going to go ahead and open up. We'll go ahead and open up in prayer so we can get into our reading. We're going to open up um, with from Valley of Vision, the third day morning prayer. God, creator and controller. Let's pray. Most high God, the universe with all its myriad creatures is thine, made by thy word, upheld by thy power, governed by thy will. But thou art also the father of mercies, the God of all grace, the bestower of all comfort, the protector of the saved. Thou hast been mindful of us, hast visited us, preserved us, given us a goodly heritage, the holy scriptures, the joyful gospel, the savior of souls. We come to thee in Jesus' name, make mention of his righteousness only. Sorry, plead his obedience and sufferings, who magnified the law both in its precepts and penalty and made it honorable. May we be justified by his blood, saved by his life, joined to his spirit. Let us take up his cross and follow him. May the agency of thy grace prepare us for thy dispensations. Make us willing that thou shouldst choose our inheritance and determine what we shall retain or lose, suffer or enjoy. If blessed with prosperity, may we be free from its snares and use not abuse its advantages. May we patiently and cheerfully submit to those afflictions which are necessary when we are tempted I'm sorry, which are necessary. When we are tempted to wander, hedge up our way, excite in us abhorrence of sin, wean us from the present evil world. Assure us that we shall at last enter Emmanuel's land, where none is ever sick, and the sun will always shine. Amen. All right. And our morning devotion here, from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Devotion, uh, this is for January 9th. And the text is from Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. I will be their God. Christian, here is all thou canst require. To make thee happy, thou wantest something that shall satisfy thee. And is not this, and is not this enough? If thou canst pour this promise into thy cup, wilt thou not say with David, Thy cup runneth over. I have more than heart can wish. When this is fulfilled, I am thy God. Art thou not possessor of all things? Desire is insatiable as death, but he who filleth all in all can fill it. The capacity of our wishes, who can measure? But the immeasurable wealth of God can more than overflow it. I ask thee if thou art not complete when God is thine. Dost thou want anything but God? 
Is not his all-sufficiency enough to satisfy thee, if all else should fail? But thou wantest more than quiet satisfaction. Thou desirest rapturous delight. Come, soul, here is music, fit for heaven, in this thy portion. For God is the maker of heaven. Not all the music blown from sweet instruments, or drawn from living strings, can yield such melody as this sweet promise. I will be their God. Here is a deep sea of bliss, a shoreless ocean of delight. Come, bathe thy spirit in it. Swim in age, and thou shalt find no shore. Dive throughout eternity, and thou shalt find no bottom. I will be their God. If this do, if this do not make thine eye sparkle, and thy heart beat high with bliss, then assuredly thy soul is not in a healthy state. But thou wantest, excuse me, but thou wantest more than present delights. Thou cravest something concerning which thou mayest exercise hope, and what more canst thou hope for than the fulfillment of this great promise? I will be their God. This is the masterpiece of all the promises. Its enjoyment makes a heaven below, and will make a heaven above. Dwell in the light of thy Lord, and let thy soul be always ravished with his love. Get out the marrow and fatness which this portion yields thee. Live up to thy privileges, and rejoice with unspeakable joy. All right. Well, so our reading today, we're going to be reading Genesis 20, 21, and 22. Uh, Matthew 7, from verse 15 through the end of the chapter. And, uh, let's see, Psalm 9, and then Proverbs 2, verse 16 through 22. So, Genesis 20. Hear the word of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night, and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. Then he said, Lord, will you kill a nation even though, righteous, even though righteous? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself also said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Indeed, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also held, back, held you back from sinning against me. Therefore I did not let you touch her. So now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning, and called all his servants, and told, and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham, and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you seen that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I said, Surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it happened when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is the loving kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen 
and male and female slaves, and gave them to Abraham, and returned his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever it is good in your sight. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother one thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all you are cleared. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, so that they bore children. For Yahweh had utterly shut all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Genesis 21 now Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was one hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Would you have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing in jest. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maidservant and her son. The son of this maidservant shall not be an heir with my son, with Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. So God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and your maidservant. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her voice, for through Isaac your seed shall be named. And of the son of the maidservant I will make a nation also, because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the child and sent her away. So she went and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was finished, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see when the child dies. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. Then God heard the voice of the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Arise, lift up the boy, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness, and was an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now it happened at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. So now swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according, according to the loving kindness that I have shown you, you shall show me and the land in which you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water, which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them cut a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean which you have set by themselves? 
He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because there the two of them swore an oath. So they cut a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Genesis 22 Now it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, and we will worship and we will return to you. Then Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and put it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to Abraham his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac and put him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the boy, and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only one, from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there was a ram after it had been caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide, as it is said this day, in the in the, sorry, in the mount of Yahweh it will be provided. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not spared my son, your only one. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have listened to my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and walked together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now it happened after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, and Buz his brother, and Kemuel the father of Aram, and Chesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel was the father of Rebekah. These eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And his concubine, whose name was Ruma, also bore Teba, and Geham, and Tehash, and Makah. All right. Matthew 7, verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the rivers came, and the winds blew, and fell against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the rivers came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as their scribes. All right, Psalm 9. For the choir director, Almuth Labin, Labin, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will recount all your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have maintained my justice and my cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished, but Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will, in, he will render justice for the peoples with equity. Yahweh also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of distress. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to Yahweh who abides in Zion. Declare among the peoples his acts, for he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lifted me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Higayon, Selah. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Yahweh, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Finally, Proverbs 2, verses 16 through 22, so 16 through the end of it. To deliver you from the strange woman, from the foreign woman who flatters with her words, who forsakes the close companion of her youth, and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death, and her tracks descend to the dead. 
all who go to her will not return, and they will not reach the paths of life, so that you will walk in the way of good men, and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will dwell in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be torn away from it. All right. Well, thank you for spending this time with me. I Like I, like I continue to tell you that I pray that this time together in the Word um, helps to keep us saturated in, in, in the Bible. Um, as, as I've said many a time before, um, we should be like John, like John Bunyan. Um, and they used to they used to say of him, um, his contemporaries would say of him that if you cut him, he would bleed bibline. He would bleed the Bible. He was so saturated in it, and that that's an example we need to strive for. But it takes more than just the reading of it. I'm gl- I'm glad you're here with me, and we're I'm reading it, and we're hearing it together. But we've also got to study it and meditate on it. So I would definitely implore you to do so and do so more than just this program, because there is so much more you need to be doing on your own and that I do. I try to do on my own, though I know there is room for improvement. All right. Well, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day. I would continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for the evening segment. Let's close out with one from Valley of Vision. We're going to do this prayer from a Valley of Vision called the Divine Will. Let's pray. O Lord, I hang on thee. I see, believe, live, when thy will, not mine, is done. I can plead nothing in myself, in regard of any worthiness and grace, in regard of thy providence and promises, but only thy good pleasure. If thy mercy makes me poor and vile, blessed be thou. Prayers arising from my needs are preparations for future mercies. Help me to honor honor thee by believing before I feel. For great is the sin if I make feeling a cause of faith. Show me what sins hide thee from me and eclipse thy love. Help me to humble myself for past evils, to be resolved to walk with more care. For I do not walk holily before thee. How can I be assured of my salvation? It is the meek and humble who are shown thy covenant. Know thy will, are pardoned and healed, who by faith depend and rest upon grace, who are sanctified and quickened, who evidence thy love. Help me to pray in faith, and so find thy will, by leaning hard on thy rich free mercy, by believing thou wilt give what thou hast promised. Strengthen me to pray with the conviction that whatever I receive is thy gift, so that I may pray until prayer be granted. Teach me to believe that all degrees of mercy arise from several degrees of prayer, that when faith is begun it is imperfect and must grow, As chapped ground opens wider and wider until rain comes, so shall I I wait thy will. Pray for it to be done, and by thy grace become fully obedient. Amen. All right, again, thank you so much for spending this time with me uh, this morning. Again, I hope you have a wonderful day, and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a good one. God bless. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Tuesday, January 9th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. All right, well, we're going to be getting back into our study of John 17 of the Gospel of John. We're in John 17, but let's go ahead and open up with prayer. Again, we're doing this from At the Throne of Grace. That's a 
uh, collection of John MacArthur's prayers assembled by his children. They're all based off of some specific scripture. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the scripture first. Um, this one is called Reflecting on the Power of One. And it's um, it comes from Romans 5, 12 through 21. So let me read that first. Just as though one man, I'm sorry, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which comes through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But when sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, here's our prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are faithful and true, holy and righteous, yet full of grace and compassion, the Most High God. We are wretched, sinful, fallen creatures, utterly unworthy of your favor. Yet you sent your own beloved Son to do for us what Adam failed to do, to fulfill the law perfectly, to die in our place, to redeem us from our hopeless state, to lift us up from Adam's fall. In Adam we were spiritually dead and headed for eternal condemnation. In Christ we are made alive eternally. As by Adam sin entered the world and death by sin, even so by Christ we receive your grace, forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life. Christ did everything Adam ought to have done and more, elevating us to a state of justification and divine favor. No mere creature could ever hope to merit. Our guilt was imputed to him and he atoned for it. Likewise, his perfect righteousness is imputed to us and we are rewarded for it. We stand before you now as your own adopted children, joint heirs with Christ. There are no words adequate to express our wonder and thankfulness for so great salvation. We come to you in the name of Christ, the perfect mediator between God and men, fully human yet eternally God. Your word reaches us that although he always existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. For our sake he made himself nothing, becoming truly and fully human, so he could re reverse the failure of Adam and be the head of a new, redeemed race. Since we are made of flesh and blood, Christ himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and thus became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. 
Now he is our true head and high priest, one who can be who can sympathize with our weakness. For since he himself was tempted in that which he, he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. We thank you, dear Father, that as sin formerly reigned over us, now grace reigns through Jesus Christ. Divine grace has transformed us. We have been taken out of the curse brought upon us through the sin of Adam, and we have been placed under your blessing through Christ. That is why we worship you and seek to live lives that honor you. Be pleased, Lord, as we offer you this prayer of thanksgiving for the gifts of forgiveness, justification, righteousness, salvation, and eternal life which come in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. And our devotion, like I said, we swapped up this week. We're going we're gonna to try a couple of different things over the weeks and try them out. Um, and we're probably going to come back to some of them like we did last week. We used uh, one of MacArthur's devotionals, which I really liked. Um, and this week we are trying Thomas Watson's Glorifying God. So this would be the devotion in there for January 9th. Um, and the verse for it is from 1 Chronicles 16, 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. We glorify God by showing our appreciation to him for everything he is to us and for everything he does for us. To glorify God is also to set God highest in our thoughts and to have a venerable esteem of him. The psalmist did this when he sang, Thou, Lord, are most high forevermore, Psalm 92, 8. And thou art exalted for above all gods. I'm sorry, thou art exalted far above all gods. Um, Psalm 97, 9. There is in God all that may draw forth both wonder and delight. There is a constellation of all beauties. He is the original and springhead of being, who sheds a glory upon his children. We glorify God when we are God admirers, when we admire his attributes, which are the gl glistering I'm sorry, the glistering beams by which the divine nature shines forth. His promises, which are the charter of free grace and the spiritual cabinet where the pearl of price is hid, the noble effects of his power and wisdom in making the world, which is called the work of his fingers. Psalm 8.3 To glorify God is to have God-admiring thoughts, to esteem, him, to esteem him as most excellent, and to search for diamonds in this rock only. All right. Well, so we're continuing on in our study of the Gospel of John. And sorry, swapping something over here. There we go. So we've, you know, we as we came into John 17, you know, we did the little bit of introduction talking about the real Lord's Prayer from from verse one and talking about the, the, the reality of it. We talked about the setting, the substance and the significance of the prayer. And in doing so, like I spoke of last evening, you know, this, it broke the prayer up basically into three parts. There, there's the Jesus praying for himself. There's Jesus praying for his disciples. And then there's Jesus praying for the church. Um, and again, um, we need to understand like when we're talking, Jesus praying for himself. And I know I said this last night, but it's, it's something we've got to remember that Jesus praying for himself is not going, you know, oh, woe is me. Please don't, please don't let me die or any of that kind of stuff or any kind of a selfish prayer like we tend to do. Oh, Lord, take this problem away from me. I don't want to have to deal with it. Oh, Lord, make me not have to pay these bills or, you know, whatever it is in our world today. It's, it's not that kind of thing. His prayers were such that it was, 
Lord, help me to complete the work you've set for me. And please don't ever misunderstand this. Um, and this is something, and I guess the reason I keep bringing it up this way is because I know over the years I've misunderstood this and it really changes the meaning here. Jesus is not praying this prayer, um, being unaware of what's coming. He hasn't taught the disciples these things in the upper room discourse from John 13 to 16. He hasn't taught them this, tried to lift them up and stuff in ignorance of what's coming. He knows exactly what's coming. He is very, very aware of what it is going to take to complete this plan. And again, we talked about that, that, that this prayer and of course this, this, this topic for the, the verses one through five we've been dealing with here in this section is the title is Jesus prayer and the eternal plan of God. And Jesus is very clear that as part of that eternal plan, a, a big part of the culmination of it is his death, is his death to pay the penalty for our sins, is his death with our sins piled upon him, the sins of those who would believe piled upon him and him taking the punishment for those sins much, much beyond the physical punishment that he's going to face being on the cross. He knows this is coming. So, so this is all said and done with clear understanding that this is coming with, with absolutely no misconceptions of what's coming. So as we've got into this section, we've looked at the right that he possessed, the right to give eternal life, the relationship he offers, which is that eternal life, that eternal life that, that we see in verse three, he goes on and explains, Jesus explains that it's a relationship, a true knowing of God, that agape love, that close, close, intimate, loving relationship with God and with Jesus Christ himself. So that's, that is that eternal life. So it's not only the right he possesses, but the, then the, the right to give it, but then the relationship that is offered, that that is given. And then we talked last night about the requirement he meets. The fact is his glorifying of God on the earth. And he talks about it, having finished the work, which you have given me to do. And again, we talked about that work. We talked about his active obedience, where he lived a perfectly holy and sinless life to the point of ensuring that he is baptized by John the Baptist to satisfy all righteousness even though there wasn't necessarily a requirement of it, as John the Baptist said, you know, Hey, you should be baptizing me. And he said, you know, let's, let's do this to settle all righteousness. He had lived a perfectly sinless life. That's the only way he could be the sacrifice necessary to pay the price for our sin. He had to be that perfectly sinless and unblemished, unblemished. Think about that unblemished sacrifice. And I'm not talking physically unblemished. Yes, I know. He gets beaten to the point where they can't, can't even recognize him. 39 lashes that tore his back apart. Okay. Um, probably to the point of showing bone through the skin. And I am sorry. I know that's gross, but we've got to understand that. But it's not, it's not, it's not the physical. That's one of the big problems. Um, and don't get me wrong. Yes, there, there was a part about the animal not having physical defects. But in this case, Jesus doesn't have physical defects. He's got wounds that have been caused by man and by wrong man. Men stuck on rabbinical tradition, not on the truth of God. 
not on God's law. Again, uh, like I've said, we have to remember that their problem wasn't the fact that they, they weren't fed up with Jesus or angry with Jesus because he was violating Mosaic law, he, that he was violating God's law. It was that they, he was violating, violating rabbinical tradition, tradition created by man that had nothing to do with Mosaic law. And in most cases was actually, or in a lot of cases, I should say a lot of cases, was in direct confrontation, direct conflict with Mosaic law. And Jesus calls them out on it. We see that in the Gospels. He calls them out on that. So, again, he has walked purely for his 30-some years, particularly through his um, three-year ministry that we're coming to the end of here in the Gospel of John. Particularly in that, he has walked it perfectly sinlessly, something that no other human could have ever done. And again, he was fully God and fully man. So he had to walk it as a human, but walked it flawlessly. Something, I mean, we heard that in our, in our, um, in our I think it was in the devotion or it was in the prayer, something that Adam couldn't do. Adam wasn't able to do it. Actually, yeah, it was. It was in the prayer. Adam wasn't able to do it, but Jesus did. Thus he is that perfect sinless because that spotlessness, I'm sorry, I, I need to come back to this. That spotlessness was a spiritual spotlessness, just like they, they seem to, to gr gravitate to the fact, and I know I've brought this up recently, that the physical circumcision was what mattered. It wasn't. That was supposed to be a representation of the spiritual circumcision, the trimming away of the worldly and the sinful. That's what that was supposed to represent. Like, in our being baptized, that is supposed to represent our being immersed and dying with Christ and rising clean and pure, rising with Christ, but clean and pure, having washed away those sins. It's supposed to be a representation of that. It's supposed to represent a spiritual cleansing, not a physical cleansing. We're not taking a bath. We're washing our robes in the blood of Christ to wash those sins away. That's what it's a representation of. So, so that's the thing. And again, he met that requirement. He walked it perfectly in his active obedience. But we're going to see coming up here, starting in John 18. And, and he's, he is acting like he, he's, you know, he's already said, we talked about the last night, having finished the work, which you have given me, he's acting like it's already done because he, unlike most of us, most of we humans, he knows that he is going to see this out and that he is going to passively obey. So here's the passive obedience. He is going to allow them to do what they do. We have to remember all of this takes place even in what they're doing, even though they are falsely accusing him, um, they, they, they are disparaging him. They are beating on him. They're, they're humiliating him. They're slapping him. You name it. He does not revile them in return. Though, they're, though they deserve it, he will not let that come out of his mouth. So God had given him to do it. See that at the end of verse 4, and he's finished it. So that was the requirement he met. But what we see in verse 5 today, we see the reverence he deserves. So verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So we saw him speak of, Christ, Jesus Christ, glorifying God on the earth in verse four, 
And in verse five, he's going, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So in a nutshell, and we're going to break this down, think about it. Basically, what he's saying is, God, you know, help me to finish this work and then bring me home. Bring me back to you with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's what he's speaking of. That's what that's saying. Okay. But here we go. Mark 16, 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So again, that's what he's talking about is being taken back into heaven and sitting down at the right hand of God, which is where he came from, which is where he came from. So, you know, that's what he's saying is it's time. Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us? The speaking of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Again, another indication of that. That's the glory. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So what he's saying with that in the near future is the culmination of all this. Jesus makes clear his desire to return to heaven and the glory that was his. And we've got clear indication it was his. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is the glory that Jesus had prior to his descent to the earth to provide salvation for us. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus Christ. And that Word was with God there in heaven, sitting beside him. And that Word was God, part of the triune Godhead, God incarnate. So that's making clear what's being talked of here. And, you know, and, and we see, I mean, we see Paul clearly talk about this. And, you know, Paul, you know, a lot of people want to go, oh, well, that's Paul. That's not Jesus. And they forget. Paul was directly instructed by Jesus. Paul is not the redheaded stepchild of the disciples. I, I know he persecuted the church. I get it. But at the same time, he was so important that Jesus went directly to him after his resurrection. Actually, after his resurrection and ascension and called him on the Damascus road and trained him. So Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God also, and I, I know we read this yesterday, by the way, we're still going back into it. But therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, meaning the greatest name of all. So that at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what Jesus is speaking of. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's what he's speaking of. As one theologian says of it, Jesus looked beyond the humiliations of Philippians 2, 5 through 8 that we looked at last night. And I'm going to read through again here. But he looked beyond that to the glory we have seen that awaited him. Again, that's Paul talking about that glory that awaited him. Paul's talking about that in the past tense, that this has already happened, that God already exalted Christ. But Philippians 2, 5 through 8, here's the humiliation that he's looking beyond. 
Um, and you know, he was speaking to the Philippians about, Hey, you need to be like Christ. So here we are, uh, Philippians two, five, have this way of thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's looking beyond that, that humiliation that he knows coming and he knows has to come. He, he realizes that even in that, there is glory. Even in that, there is glory. Because it's the hard steps that have to be taken to bring about the salvation of the chosen of God. And Jesus also knew, like, actually, I was just already getting into there. I got ahead of myself. Jesus also knew that the saving work of his crucifixion would bring eternal life to all who would believe in him, who would have a saving faith in him, which is going to bring great joy in heaven. He knew it would bring this about, that it would, it would complete that saving as, as humiliating as it was. He knew there was glory in that, and he knew he would be rewarded afterward, and he knew there would be great joy and celebration in heaven regarding it. Uh, Luke 15, verse 7 and 10. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, we sit there and we go, well, wait a minute, we were talking about Jesus. Yeah, except these people, these sinners who repent, cannot repent without the work of Christ on the cross. Please don't miss that. that that's clearly why that's there. So this leads Christ to rejoice in the work of the cross, even while despising the humiliation of having to bear our sins and the fact that this would cause him to be forsaken by his father, separated from his father. That That's, I mean, that's why he cries out, why have you forsaken me from the cross? God cannot look on sin and our sins, the sins of we who believed, were piled on his shoulders. Our dirty rags were piled on him and his righteousness put on us. It says again in Ephesians 1, talks about us being holy and blameless before God. Only reason we are is because we're covered in Christ's robes, not our own. But that means Christ is covered in ours and God cannot look at the, the scriptures are clear. God cannot look on sin. So he turns from Christ on the cross, on the cross. That's why Jesus says that as we read in the gospels. But even that he rejoiced in as horrible as that was and as horrible and disgusting as it must have felt. Even painful pain that we couldn't even understand of having our sin piled on his sinless back. But we also have to see that the praise for Christ and for his work continues off into eternity. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
Now, this is the 24 elders and the four living creatures and, and probably anybody else that is up there, anybody else of the heavenly host that is up there. They are singing this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus knows, and this is why he's looking for the glory. He sees even in this, the glory that in his death, he purchased us. In his death, he purchased us. You know? And so there's glory in that. And as I was studying through this, something really kind of struck me. One of the greatest pictures of the Gospels for me is the empty tomb. Jesus is no longer there. This is why I don't care for crucifixes. And I'm, I'm not putting down anybody. Please understand, I'm not putting down anybody. I, I'm not trying to lay... Um, some kind of obligation or, or conscience on anybody. I'm not trying to, to manhandle your conscience. I don't care for crucifixes. Um, and when I'm talking about crucifixes, I'm talking about a cross with Jesus still on it. I don't care for them because they leave Jesus on the cross. Um, at least that's how I see it. He's not still on the cross and he's not still in the tomb. He has risen and he has ascended to be seated at the right hand of his father, having completed the work necessary to provide eternal life for those who would truly believe. That's the glory that, that he sees, that he is looking at. And it's coming and it's coming quick. <laughs> it's coming quick and he knows it um, because he knows the humiliation has come. But even in the humiliation, there is glory because of the sacrifice he is making. And what greater love can a man show than that he die for a friend? Well, Jesus died for us. We even see it further going off, off into the future. Revelation 1, 13 through 20. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I am dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which... Wow, something just popped up, sorry. And the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven church, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, that, that glory, that off into the future, John is seeing Christ. That is Christ. But what we got to see is, the, is this, and th this is the great glory that he's talking about in being glorified, glorified together with God, with the glory which, which I had with you before the world was. As one theologian so wonderfully puts it, were it not for the cross, there would be no salvation from sin for anyone in any age, no gospel of grace, no hope for this life, and no eternal destiny but hell. Okay? 
So again, this is this is speaking of the, his death on the cross applies across all time from before the foundation of the world off into eternity. So yes, those who died, but with a saving faith prior to Jesus. Yeah, they, they are saved and they are saved by the cross. Okay. But again, let me say it again. Were it not for the cross, there would be no salvation from sin for anyone in any age, no gospel of grace, no hope for this life and no eternal destiny, but hell. Believe me, we'd still have an eternity, but it would be hell. So this should lead us to profess with Paul, um, Galatians 6.14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, meaning we've been separated from it. That, that is the reverence that Christ deserves. All right. That's going to do it for this evening. I thank you for spending this time with me this evening. I continue to pray that this time together helps us all to get a better understanding of the scripture and to grow in our walk so that as Ephesians 5.1, I know I keep coming back to it, but as it says that we would be imitators of God, we would be the mimetists of God. Um, so again, thank you for spending this time with me. I hope you have a wonderful night and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Let's go ahead and close out in prayer. We're going to close out with the third day evening prayer. It's called before sleep. Let's pray. God of all sovereignty, thy greatness is unsearchable, thy name most excellent, thy glory above the heavens. Ten thousand minister to thee, ten thousand times ten thousand stand before thee. In thy awful presence we are less than nothing. We do not approach thee because we deserve thy notice, for we are sinners. Our necessities compel us, thy promises encourage us, our broken hearts incite us, the mediator draws us, thy acceptance of others moves us. Look thou upon us and be merciful unto us. Convince us of the penalty and pollution of sin. Give us faith to believe and believing to have life in Jesus. May we enter into his sufferings. Let us see thy hand in the instruments of our grief, rejoicing that they are from thy overruling providence. Let not our weeping hinder sowing, nor sorrow duty. While living in a world of change, let us seek the abiding city. Be with us to our journey's end, that we may glorify thee in death as in life. We bless thee for preservation, supplies, mercies, and to thee, keeper of souls, we commit all we are and have. May no evil befall us, no sickness come nigh us, no horror disturb us. May our conscience be clear, our hearts pure, our sleep sweet, and with the innumerable company who neither slumber nor rest, we join in ascribing blessing, honor, glory, and power to the Lamb upon the throne forever and ever. Amen. All right. Again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful night, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night. God bless.